you would turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2, we have a long chapter ahead of us this morning. Everybody brought their lunch, I hope. We'll try to get through it, uh, but it is a long long chapter as far as reading it goes, for sure. Uh, Daniel chapter 2, we're going to read all 49 verses. Hear the word of the Lord. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. The king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king again and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry, very furious, and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Eric, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I have given thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. 
But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. You saw, O king, and behold, a, a great image. This image, mighty and an exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of the image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron, partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom the power and the might and the glory, and at whose hand he has given wherever they dwell the children of man, the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be divided as a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. As the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and paid homage to Daniel, commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request to the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you that indeed you are the revealer of mysteries, the revealer of the future. You are the one who has laid out the end from the beginning, the Alpha and the Omega. You are God. We are your people. You've given us your word. We pray that we would not treat your word as King Nebuchadnezzar did, letting it go in one ear and out the other, not benefiting from it at all, like the birds that came and ate the seeds that fell along the path. Lord, help us to meditate upon this word help us to remember this word chew upon it throughout the day lord may we continue to 
submit ourselves to you as the one rightful king over all this world. May we give you the offerings and the tribute that you deserve through our prayers, through our praise, through our life, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Dreams are not half as exciting as they used to be. Once Sigmund Freud published his groundbreaking theory on the interpretation of dreams, he ruined it for all of us. He proposed that dreams merely serve as a window into the unconscious mind, revealing our hidden desires, fears, and conflicts. In his day, he not only rejected the prevailing theory among scientists that dreams really were just brain activity, they really didn't mean anything, but he also rejected any religious aspect of the understanding of dreams as well. He actually criticized Joseph's symbolic interpretation of Pharaoh's dream, if you remember when he saw the fat and the skinny cows, uh, that uh, Joseph had said that they represented years of plenty and years of famine, Uh, but uh, Freud rejected all of that, saying that instead that this is a, a, it's all about the Pharaoh himself. So in other words, the Pharaoh's a big fat cow who needs to lose weight. That's his, that's his assumption, at least, that it's somehow always about the person who's actually dreaming and not about something else. In this work, Freud proposed that certain dream elements have universal meaning. Uh, and most of you know that when uh, you imagine yourself as naked in a dream, that somehow that's supposed to symbolize your vulnerability or fear of, of vulnerability. He also said that if you fall down in your dream, that represents a fear of failure. Or if you lose your teeth in a dream. Has anyone ever lost their teeth in a dream? A few of you. You're afraid of getting old, afraid of aging. I have never dreamed any of these things, but I've dreamed quite a few other terrifying things, I'm sure. But the wise men in Babylon would have disagreed with everything Sigmund Freud was saying about the overall philosophy of dreams, but what they had in, <clears throat> what they had in common was the fact that they both thought that there was a universal interpretation of the actual symbols in the dreams. Uh, Freud would say that they refer to something that, that is going on within the conscience, uh, that is in the present, whereas the Babylonians would say it's something that's going on in the world and the future. But both of them kept uh, quite a bit of notes g- regarding the universal interpretation of dreams, so much so that in ancient times, uh, they have found over 2,000 tablets in Mesopotamia where basically they're notes on the interpretation of dreams. Uh, you, can, you can find these and even look at some of them online, but they served as manuals for the sorcerers, for the magicians, and, and for the conjurers and necromancers of ancient times. They would consult these manuals on dream interpretations in order to be able to, to explain the dreams of the kings and the other royals in the family. <clears throat> Obviously, dreams were a very serious business back then. They took them very seriously as omens from above. So when, when King Nebuchadnezzar has this great nightmare that he's seeing this image and he, he doesn't quite understand what it means or where it's going, thank you, what happens is he immediately calls in all of these specialists who are, are meant to be interpreters of dreams, those who are trained in oneirology, which literally means the study of dreams. I had to throw that out there just for the fun of it. <clears throat> but basically, they were the best of the best. So you could say it was his dream team. Sorry, had to do it. When he shared with them how the dream had troubled him, they thought, no problem. Tell us your dream. We got our manuals. We will help you understand exactly what it means. Of course, Nebuchadnezzar then clarified the statement, saying that he actually wanted them to tell him the content of his dream. 
not just the interpretation. And the way it reads in the original language, it makes it seem as if possibly Nebuchadnezzar himself doesn't remember what he dreamed. It's possible that he's forgotten most, if not all of it, but he remembers how it frightened him dearly. So he wants to know the content of the dream. At least that's one interpretation. Certainly many of others of us have also thought that he actually knew what the dream was about, but didn't trust his counselors, that he, he questioned their integrity. And as a result, um, was putting them to the test, if you will. Uh, but, but it's not just simply that, I mean, every king has the right to sort of challenge his advisors, if you will, but the, the, the demands that he's placing upon them obviously are unreasonable. No man could give him this uh, interpretation and the dream itself. But it also what he threatened them with was certifiably insane. He says, if you can't do this, what's going to happen? All of you will be torn limb from limb, so everyone will be dismembered, and then basically their house will be burned and then become a dunghill. That's literally, so in fact, the, the idea of uh, hell is sometimes compared to Gehenna. Gehenna is the name of a trash hill, a dump that was set on fire. Usually those types of places happen as a result of someone who was shamed in that community. Their whole house was turned into a place where everybody threw their trash. That's what he's saying. I'm going to dismember you, destroy your family, probably kill all your family members, and then turn your house into a trash pile. A little bit excessive, you think? Uh, but you're beginning to see already something of his paranoia, megalomania, that he's, uh, you're going to see this more and more as the narrative unfolds in the next few chapters. But if you'll notice in verse 8 and 9, he thinks they're just stalling for time. He firmly believes that they're lying through their teeth, and he doesn't trust them at all. Uh, I don't know if he has reason not to trust them at this point or not, but he doesn't. And so he orders the death of every wise man in Babylon who cannot tell him the meaning of the dream. And of course, their immediate response, if you look in verse 10, is a simple and plain response, and it's, it's, it's very powerful. They, they say to him, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is too difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with, with, with flesh. Of course, this is where Daniel comes into the scene, and he he too is classified as a wise man, so he and his three friends also come under the same condemnation as the rest of the wise men in the land. They would suffer the same fate if they couldn't interpret the dream. But more importantly, the Lord God himself comes into focus because it's Daniel's God that he's representing that might be different than these other religious figures that stand before the king of Babylon at all times. And so we're beginning to see this is the, the main challenge, the main point of this text, simply that uh, the God of the Jews, the, really the God of the Jewish slaves, is being compared to the God of all of these wise men who stand for the Babylonian Empire. Can the God of the Jews reveal what the other ones cannot? And the answer is yes, he can. And the reason why he can is because God is the dream weaver. He is the one who put the dream in the king's head in the first place, so rightly he would know the interpretation of it as well, as well as the content of the dream. What, he was the one who, who gave him this terrifying sight in the first place. What's interesting about this revelation is that it's given to a pagan king, though, instead of to a Jewish prophet. Notice that? It's actually not the first time this has happened. We mentioned uh, already uh, that earlier on that, that God actually spoke to the Pharaoh of Egypt and that Joseph interpreted his dreams for him. And the passage that David read for us earlier uh, in the New Testament, we see that God reveals himself to Pilate's wife. 
He's, he's, he's in the habit of speaking not just to the believers, but also to unbelievers at very unusual times. We see the same thing in the Old Testament. God actually has a conversation with the king of Gerar, Abimelech, in his dreams, rebuking him for taking Sarah home as his wife, knowing that she's already married to Abraham. And we actually see a conversation between the king and God in his dreams. It's very quite fascinating what God is doing with these pagan men. And yet, in this particular dream, it doesn't seem as if God actually speaks to Nebuchadnezzar, but just shows him these images, these signs, and he doesn't know what to do with it. It scares him to death. He has no idea what's going on. But it's at this moment that Daniel switches from the Hebrew language to the Aramaic language. As soon as we're seeing that God is making revelation and giving revelation to someone who is not of Jewish persuasion, someone who's not a believer. As most of you know, the Old Testament was translated in, uh, into the Greek language. We call it the Septuagint, right? It was translated by 70 men into the, the, the word sept means seven or 70 and, and expansively. Uh, but did you know that the, the Old Testament was also translated into the Babylonian language of Aramaic, the whole Old Testament? We call it the Babylonian Targums. Also, the, the people at that time also received God's word in its fullness at, at, during that time later on. And so it would make sense when we get to the New Testament, we're going to see this when we get to our Jesus walk narrative, and we see this in the whole Christmas celebration, when we see these wise men coming from the east from afar, and they're looking for the, the one who's born king of the Jews. It makes sense why they're looking for him. More than likely, they had already had much access to all the Old Testament, in addition to being these stargazers that God actually speaks to these pagan men and revealing to them something of the Son of God who is to be born. Uh, the Lord has already revealed himself on numerous occasions to other Babylonian kings. Nebuchadnezzar is not the last one that he will reveal himself to. So it's not hard for us to believe that he would do this later on with the wise men in Babylon as well. In fact, um, in Isaiah 47... The prophet Isaiah is confronting the, the stargazers, the wise men of Babylon, taunting them, if you will, that they really are, their, their counsel is worthless. And he says this to them. He says, let your astrologers come forward, those stargazers who make predictions month by month. Let them save you from the destruction coming upon you because they don't see anything. And yet then God reveals to these same types of men, these pagans years later, here is the knowledge you need to know to be saved. At the time, they had no comprehension of the destruction that was coming. Now he's giving them a message of salvation. It is a beautiful gospel indeed. In another strange manner of revelation, if you remember, the Lord also spoke to King Saul through a witch. Remember this? The witch of Endor. She served as a medium. The funny thing is she was just as surprised as Saul was that an apparition actually appeared and began to speak to Saul. Uh, in the same manner, these pagan astrologers, these pagan wise men, these pagan dream interpreters, they do not actually expect their gods to give them the real answers to this. They don't expect God to show up, which is all the reason why uh, this text is written to show us that our God is expected to show up and to give them the actual answer. Now, uh, let, me, let me say this before I go any further, though. I will, I will say, know that dreams are not meant to be an everyday occurrence, at least not in the terms of divine dreams. All of us have dreams all the time. Every night you're probably dreaming. Most of them probably do not mean anything. 
Okay, so don't, don't go automatically assume that you're looking for some future revelation that God has given you in that regard. Even in Scripture, it was far and few between and only at significant pivotal moments in that regard. But the author of Hebrews tells us very plainly that in the past, God spoke it many times in various ways through the prophets and in and, and ways that you wouldn't expect him to. But he says in the very first chapter, the first couple of verses, but in these last days, how has he spoken to us? Through his Son. And what he means by that is in the past, God would speak through shadows and figures and all these things, and you had to interpret it to understand what he was talking about. But now God has revealed himself fully in the Son, Jesus Christ. Why would you want to go back to the shadows when you have the fullness of the revelation in Christ Jesus? So with that being said, uh, with the culmination of the revelation that we have, uh, we understand what Nebuchadnezzar didn't. And we're going to see a little bit more in this text than any of the Babylonians or even the Jews did at the time that these dreams were interpreted. But all of it's meant to point us to Christ, and we'll see that soon enough. But back to the narrative. If you look in verses 11 through 16, there we're introduced to another minor character in the story. If you remember last week, we got to know a little bit about the man named Ashpenaz, who was the chief eunuch in the king's palace. This time we're introduced to a man by the name of Arioch, who was the captain of the king's guard. If you remember last week... The chief eunuch had given, was, uh, the Lord had given Daniel favor in the eunuch's eyes. And now we're seeing the Lord is also giving favor, uh, the favor of Daniel in the eyes of this guard as well. His job, his sole task was to go in and to kill Daniel and his three friends. But we'll see here in verses 13 through 15 uh, that instead of immediately killing him, Daniel asks him a question. He seeks to answer it and immediately offers an alternative way out of this situation that he's amenable to, which again, any sane person working for the insane king of Babylon is not going to do this, but he's willing to take another option uh, that Daniel presents to him in that regard. So instead of running, instead of hiding, which he could easily have done, Daniel and his three friends, instead he makes a plan to boldly walk into the king's palace, hoping that the king will give him an audience, uh, which the king does actually grant, and then he makes another Uh, strange, he makes a request for an extension of time. Now, what happened with the other ones who asked for an extension of time? No, you're a bunch of liars, and you're just trying to stall for time. But again, the king gives him time to go and pray and to think through these things before he comes and interprets uh, the prayer for them. And so he gathers up his three friends, uh, uh, gathers them up, and notice in the text he refers to his friends by their Hebrew names, not by their Babylonian names, right? In fact, I think it's a travesty that we all know their Babylonian names, but most of us don't know their Hebrew names. Uh, they're only given the Babylonian names when they're being referred to by the Babylonian figures, but we always know them by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego instead of Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. Certainly in heaven, when you meet them, they will not go by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Just know that. So if you can't pronounce Abednego now, don't worry about it. You won't have to worry about it in the future. But Daniel gathers these men together. They seek the mercy of heaven concerning this mystery, and the Lord reveals the dream and its interpretation to Daniel in a vision of the night. It, it, what you need to know about this basically is the vision in the night. It's used synonymously with the concept of the dream because later on when Daniel explains to Nebuchadnezzar his dream, he calls it a vision in the night. So in other words, what's the point that's being made here? Well, the author who has written this account for us, is helping us to see that the king who is the most powerful king in the world at this time is troubled because of a nightmare of something that will happen in the future, whereas Daniel, whose life is on the line right now, is sleeping like a baby. And God is giving him this dream to explain the dream and the interpretation of the king. 
And this is right in accord with what we find in the rest of Scripture, Proverbs 3, verses 24 and 25. Solomon tells us of the blessings of those who pursue the wisdom of God. He says, if you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet, and you will not be afraid of the sudden terror when it comes, because you're trusting in the God of heaven. You're trusting in the one all-wise God. Nebuchadnezzar, who's supposedly surrounded by his wise men, is a fool, and yet this young man who has no one else uh, but the word of God to rely upon is full of wisdom, and the Lord blesses him because of it. Later on, the same manner, the Lord will speak through the prophet Ezekiel to the king of Tyre. And it's interesting, uh, in, in Ezekiel 28, verse 3, uh, he says to the king of Tyre that you think you're so wise, you think you're as wise as Daniel. Already, Daniel has made a name for himself because Ezekiel's written not long after. Everyone has heard the name of Daniel and, and his great wisdom and patience and discretion. But again, it's not Daniel himself that's the hero of the story. It's the God whom Daniel represents, who has given him mercy, who has given him favor in the eyes of all of these people to carry out this particular task. If you look in verses 20 through 23, we see that very clearly. When Daniel responds to this heavenly vision with his own heavenly praise, acknowledging that it's God alone who gives wisdom, God alone who gives might, God alone who can reveal these deep and hidden things, even shining light into the very darkness of the king's soul. Notice particularly, though, in verse 21. There, Daniel says, it's God alone who changes the times and seasons so that all history is in his hands. He is the one who sets up kings, and he's the one who removes them. This is a, a huge aspect of comfort for the people of God at the time, knowing that God is the one who has put Nebuchadnezzar in his place. He's also the one who's going to take him out in its time. But when Daniel finally stands before the king, this is the very pinnacle of the chapter, right? This is, this is where it's all leading up to. Daniel says this in verse 27. He says, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that he's asked. But, he says in verse 28, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to, to the king what will be in the latter days. Now, in our minds as Christians, we naturally uh, want to jump to the fulfillment of the dream. It makes sense to us. Uh, it's more weighty for us, mainly because we're on the other end of history, right? We've seen these kingdoms unfold over time, and we've seen them all crash, if you will. But the king and those who are originally reading this uh, in the first generation who have it uh, cannot identify those future kings by name. Uh, that's not what moves them, but rather the fact that there is a God in heaven who is orchestrating all of this. That there's a God in heaven who sits on his throne, who raises up one king and tears him down to only be replaced by another, who he raises up and then tears down, etc., etc. But in the end, God is the one who is pulling the strings. That's the, the primary message that we're meant to receive from this. But Daniel proceeds to share then the, the minute details of the dream. Again, I don't know how much of the dream the king actually remembers, but even if he remembered most of it, even some of these details would have come back and shocked him all the more. So Daniel fills in the gaps. Again, uh, we've, we've read this numerous times. Maybe some of you have seen some Daniel movie of some kind. They're all horrible. They're bad. Pray that good Christian filmmakers would rise up and do a dream sequence on this. I would love to see this. It can't be that hard. Pray for, there might be some younger generations here this day that maybe might want to be filmmakers. Make good movies. 
make biblical movies. It used to be in the 50s that the top five movies were always biblical movies, it seemed like. May it be again. Come, somebody make up this. I would love to see it before I die. Please do it. But in the meantime, uh, as we're describing it, Nebuchadnezzar sees this. It's a massive statue, if you will. It's mighty, he says. It's brilliant in light, and it's terrifying all at the same time. And as you know, uh, it's, it stands erect. At the very top, you see his head is full of gold. And then you go further down, you see his chest and arms are of silver. His middle and thighs are made of bronze. The legs are made of iron. And then when you get down to the feet, it, each toe is like made of iron and clay. It's mixed together, right? And then what we see after that, uh, that's, what De- that's what Nebuchadnezzar sees in his dream, then immediately we see this rock that begins to roll and it gets bigger and bigger. And then it just knocks the statue down, breaking it into pieces. Then after that, we see another part of the image of his dream where now we see this strong wind that comes in and just blows it all away like it's chaff on the threshing floor. And then finally, the stone grows bigger and bigger and bigger until it becomes a mountain and then fills all the earth, right? So it's a, it's a, it's a quite terrifying dream for someone like the king, especially. And for the interpretation, Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, He himself is the head of gold. You are that golden image. But then he also says each succeeding or inferior part of the statue refers to other kingdoms that will come after yours. Even though uh, the other ones, he says, are inferior in some sense, at least the last couple of them seem to be stronger because they take over many parts of the world with the last one like iron destroying everything in its path and yet it's inferior in quality in some other manner. Uh, showing also, too, that it's even though it seems strong in the end, it's just as brittle because it doesn't hold together but breaks apart. But again, notice Daniel doesn't seek to tell him the names of the other kingdoms. He focuses, in fact, not on the two in the middle at all. He barely even references them. He, he mainly focuses on the first kingdom, which is his, which is Babylon's, and then the last kingdom that takes over all of these things. But he says very few words of the others in between. That's not his purpose in revealing these things to Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, but what we find, uh, again, from our understanding at this end of the history, we, we, we believe that the first kingdom obviously refers to Babylon, since he mentions it by name, and then afterwards we refer to the, the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians that replaces that one, and then we refer to the kingdom of the Greeks, and then we refer to the kingdom of the Romans. That's the, the traditional interpretation, certainly the one that makes the most sense. But I mentioned to you a couple weeks ago that there are those that are more critically minded in reading of Scripture, a little bit more liberal in their approach to the understanding of the Word of God. Uh, Most of them will say that instead that Daniel was not a real figure, first of all, and they'll also say that Daniel didn't write this during the time of the Babylonian Empire, but rather wrote it during the time of the Greek Empire. So he's actually looking backwards and saying that this was all prophesied, but really wasn't. So he's a pseudo-writer, right? So in other words, they're making Greece to be the final kingdom instead of Rome. And as a result, what they do is they say Babylon's the first kingdom, the second kingdom is the kingdom of the Medes, and then separates it from the kingdom of the, the Persians, and then finally Greek is, Greece is the, the final kingdom. Um, but I, I, I want to say, when you look at Scripture itself, I don't think at all that's what the Scripture implies, and let me show you why. First of all, um, there are a couple places in the Old Testament that always refer to the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians together. 
Esther, the whole book of Esther, we have King Ahasuerus, and, and he's referring to this law of the, of the Persians and the Medes, right? Daniel does it three times, but reverses the order, the law of the Medes and the Persians, showing that they are interchangeable. There's no difference between them. It's the law of these two tribes, these two kingdoms into one, if you will. But the, the kicker, if you really want to see this to prove it, Daniel chapter 5, verse 28. In that verse, Daniel, who's now revealing the future to the, another king of Babylon, tells him which kingdom is replacing his. And he says, plainly, the kingdom that's replacing yours is the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, meaning that it's one kingdom that's replacing yours, and it's that tandem kingdom of those two countries. So if you have any respect for biblical authority at all, I think, and, and you want to give the weightiness to the person who actually interpreted this dream, you would think he would know what he's talking about later on when he's explaining to the next king this is the kingdom that replaces the first. You follow me? Now, why do I keep bringing up this controversy? I'd like to argue, apparently. No. Well, sometimes. But because of this, when we get to the New Testament, in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, when Jesus first comes on the scene in that gospel, the first words out of his mouth are these. He says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. What time do you think he's referring to? He's referring to Daniel's timeline. The kingdom that had been prophesied all these years in the past, it has now arrived. It is at hand. It's here. And what empire is living at this time? The Roman Empire. Jesus comes on the scene in the Roman Empire, and he begins to explain this kingdom, and the way he explains the kingdom and the parables of the kingdom, he uses a couple different analogies that sound awfully similar to Daniel's prophecy. If you remember, the first one he refers to, he says, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Starts out really small, but then continues to grow up into a big tree to where even the birds can sit in its branches, right? In the same way, he also talks about the uh, the, the, the kingdom of God being like a, um, like, a, like a tree that fills the whole earth. Every time he, des- he describes this, um, I'm sorry, not like a tree, that's what I just said. He describes, if you remember, the other kingdom parable is when he's describing uh, how the leaven enters the bread, right? And then the leaven takes it all over. It takes over everything. It continues to expand until it takes over all of, 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 of the substance itself. And he's saying in the same way, this kingdom is going to continue to grow and take over the whole world. And when Jesus is describing this in, in this way, you think, well, he doesn't actually mention a rock. Instead, he just mentions a tree and what have you. But you'll notice a couple chapters later in Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar has another dream. But in this dream, he doesn't refer to a rock, but rather a tree that continues to grow bigger and bigger and bigger. But what about the rock? Luke chapter 20, verses 17 and 18. Jesus describes himself using a mixed metaphor where he's describing himself, first of all, as the cornerstone of the temple. Remember that? He says, the temple is going to be built. I'm the cornerstone, and then the prophets and the apostles will sit upon that, and then the whole church will be built, if you will. But you'll notice then he begins to talk about this stone that's supposed to be the very bottom of the the edifice, the very bottom of the building, and yet now he talks about it as if it's falling on people and crushing them that do not receive his kingdom. Where is he getting this language from? It's not used anywhere else except for in this chapter in Daniel. He's saying, I am the stone that's going to crush every other kingdom. 
I am the, the cornerstone, the foundational stone, the one stone that's going to build up the kingdom itself, the kingdom of heaven, and it's going to come through me. Of course, Nebuchadnezzar won't get any of this. He doesn't understand any of this. He dies long before any of this comes to pass. But here's what he does understand. And we'll see this more clearly in, in next week in chapter 3. Daniel's explanation, uh, he's very clear about it. The king understands that the Lord God is the one who has set him up to be the king. The one who has given him his power, his might, his glory, his, his authority over all things on earth, if you will. And we'll find out very quickly, Nebuchadnezzar does not like this at all. He doesn't take too kindly to this, this fact that God is the one who has set him up. And so finally, when we get to a later chapter, we find that Nebuchadnezzar rejects this revelation entirely when he says, when he's on the roof of his palace, is not this great Babylon that I have built by my own power, by my own might, by my own glory. He hears the word of God, but rejects it entirely in that regard. Nebuchadnezzar also doesn't like the part about his kingdom being replaced by another kingdom, as you can imagine. Uh, which actually leads us to why he builds this big statue in the next chapter. There is a correlation. We'll get to that next week. Stay tuned. But in the meantime, he understands that his kingdom is going to last at least during his time span. He knows that he's secure in his own time span, which is why he's kind of happy at the end, because he knows, okay, it's not being ripped from me. I'm going to live out my years, and then it's going to be replaced sometime after me. It's very similar, in fact, to the King Hezekiah that we talked about a few weeks ago. And he said, well, as long as it doesn't bother me, I guess it's okay, you know, in that sense. Uh, so he may be okay with it to some extent, but again, it's interesting, though. When Daniel changes from the Hebrew to the Aramaic, it doesn't take place in, in the first verse. Again, we, for those of you who weren't here a couple weeks ago, uh, the book of Daniel is written, half of it is in Hebrew and half of it is in Aramaic. The first chapter, entirely Hebrew. Second chapter, the first three verses are in Hebrew. But then in chapter 4, or excuse me, verse 4 of chapter 2, it changes to Aramaic. I think the timing of when he changes it is terrific. The very first words that are spoken are the words of his chancellors or his advisors saying, O king, live forever. And then at the end of the story, we see Daniel saying, King, you're not going to live forever. God's going to take you down. He raised you up. He will take you down. Your days are numbered, if you will. Then finally, we see the physical reaction to the king after hearing all of the, the dream and all of its interpretation, how he responds to this. Don't think for a minute that, that Nebuchadnezzar has become a believer. He is not. In fact, if you look at the text closely, notice what he's doing. It says he falls down on his face, paying homage to Daniel and commanding that an offering and incense be offered up to who? To Daniel. He has no intention of worshiping this supposed God who has set him up. He's worshiping Daniel for revealing this mystery to him. Now, he, he gives credence to supposedly Daniel's God and says, you know, this God has been able to do this. But at the same time, he's responding to this miracle in the same way that the inhabitants of Lystra respond to Paul. And is it Paul, Barnabas or Silas? I think it's Barnabas early on. Uh, when, they, when they preach the gospel, they also heal a guy who is crippled from birth. And as soon as they do that, they immediately call them Hermes and Zeus and bow down to them and want to worship them. This is exactly the response that we see here in this text. The king wants to worship a, a man who's made in the image of God, which again helps us to understand what's going on in the next chapter when he makes this glorious image. 
There's something wrong with Nebuchadnezzar. He hasn't got it like the birds on the path. They've come and eat it up. He doesn't get it at all. Now, we're not told, though, how Daniel responds to this strange act of worship, but we are told that he's elevated, he's honored, he's, he's promoted uh, to where he becomes the ruler over all the provinces of Babylon as well as the chief prefect over the wise men. And notice he also takes the opportunity at this time to have his three friends elevated as well, which, uh, as you know, will soon lead to their persecution. Uh, with the rising tide of anti-Semitism amongst the Chaldeans. It's coming quickly. But again, the primary message in this passage revolves around the response of the wise men to the king's demand. This is what they said, again, the thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. But then at the end of the chapter... Daniel is quoting from the king's mouth himself, his own words, when he says, truly your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries. There's a big difference between the gods of Babylon who are dumb and mute and deaf and the God who is the God of all wisdom. The problem was that the Babylonians didn't believe that the gods could speak to them. The problem was they thought, well, you have to dwell with the gods or else the gods have to dwell with us in the flesh. And that hasn't happened. It won't happen according to their mind. But that's the beauty of the gospel, right? The word of God has come and dwelt among us and has taken on flesh and has revealed the mysteries of all the world in his son, Jesus Christ. He has made peace amongst us through the blood of his own cross, sacrificing himself to even bring people like King Nebuchadnezzar the wicked, the chief, the most sinful people in the world, he's able to reconcile them through the blood of his son, through faith in Jesus. Indeed, Jesus is the one king that Daniel spoke of that's also the savior of sinners, the only human that we can ever bow before and give an offering of praise because he is the king, the king of kings, and also the savior of the world. This is, what, this is what Daniel is helping us to see. The rest of the book is going to help you see more of it. That's why when we get to Luke chapter 24, when Jesus talks to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, he says, all of this that you've been reading in the Old Testament, it's all about me. If we miss that, we miss the whole point of Daniel. It's not that Daniel's a superhero. Daniel's God is the hero of the story. And he gives wisdom to all of us who seek it. So go seek his wisdom. <laughs> Might, we might be able to stand up as well for the King of Kings. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that you would help us, uh, Lord, as we live in a society and under a kingdom that is quite different from uh, the final kingdom that you have promised that has already come in, has already been ushered in. We already now even are citizens of two different kingdoms. We're citizens of the United States, but also citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Lord, we pray that you would give us the same wisdom that you gave Daniel, that we might know how to live in these days. Help us to have the same discretion and prudence as we're walking in these ways. Lord, help us to be men and women who who look to you, who are able to sleep at night, knowing that all of our anxieties can be lifted up to you, even at the, the greatest fear of persecution, knowing that we can sleep and rest because our lives are in your hands. Lord, we, 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 we know that that's the truth because we have placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. 
We know our eternal destination. We know the end of the story, and we can rest completely in what you have already done and what you have already accomplished. Praise be to God. But we pray, Lord, you would give us wisdom in these days. Help us to be a people known by that wisdom. Help us to be a people known by the peace of God, we pray.